Good morning and welcome. Very happy that you're here with us. Happy New Year. Um, actually, a few more folks than I, my wife and I thought would even be here today. So <laughs> I'm glad you braved it out. And uh, it's great. Uh, I think one of the reasons we like living out here is that the ball drops at 10 o'clock and you can go to bed. You know, it's, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, I hope you've been following along um, as uh, Pastor Jim has had us in this uh, series through Advent, and um, uh, I think we're in week, the final week. This is the final week, week six, uh, and it centers in on Matthew chapter two. Uh, uh, Pastor Jim and Barb were away on uh, visiting family this week, I think in California, and uh, just got back last night, so um, uh, the shock troops are here this morning. I'm filling in and uh, doing Matthew chapter 2 uh, as, per our, as per our schedule. You know, there's probably no portion of the Bible uh, that I know of anyway uh, that has so much, um, can I call it Christian folklore? Uh, Christian folklore, legend, whatever, mixed in with the actual account uh, so that to the point where a lot of people who, even some people who come to church regularly, have no idea what's, what's fact and what's fiction when it comes to Matthew chapter 2. For example, uh, in Matthew 2, uh, we're told that, or most people believe, that we have the three wise men, right? Now, the truth is we have no idea if there were three. Uh, we call them wise men. The Bible simply uses the term magi. Uh, they were people from the, from the east, uh, people who were probably into uh, ast- either astronomy or astrology or both. Um, and the scripture simply says that the Magi came from the east. And I think in our guide this week uh, for the for the six-week vigil that we're on during Advent, it's the heading is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so I guess somewhere along the line, somebody deduced since there were three gifts, there must have been three wise men. But we have no clue if there were. Uh, There could have been two magi and three gifts, or there could have been six magi and three gifts. The truth of the matter is, we really don't know. Uh, But this became so entrenched that during the Middle Ages... Uh, somebody actually came up with the idea that they even knew their na- we even knew their names. And the names purportedly uh, in church legend are Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior. So did you notice our greeting question that I gave to Krista? <laughs> what are the names of the wise men? Well, if you know, you're, you're clairvoyant because nobody else does. We, we don't know. We don't know if there were three, much less what their names were. And yet somebody came up with the idea. See how legend and tradition uh, can reach the point where it actually begins to obscure what the Bible actually says. Um, And if it isn't bad enough that they came up with names for these uh, people that we don't even know how many there were, uh, a bishop in Cologne, Germany, in the 12th century said that he had actually discovered the skulls of the three wise He said they were kings, not wise men. He said they were kings, and he had found their skulls. Now, how did he know that it was, maybe they still had the crowns on the skulls? I don't know. You know, how did he know it was the three kings, you know? So, you can see how, how things are really 
the average person who, you know, the average person who maybe comes to church a couple times a year is so confused about what's real and what's not in this. And did they come to the stable? That's another thing that, you know, most people in our, in our creches, our nativity scenes, the wise men are there at the stable when Jesus is born presenting their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Well, the truth is, uh, the magi, whoever they were, however many there were, arrived months, most likely, after Christ was born. And by the time they arrived, uh, we're told in Matthew chapter 2 that when they got to Bethlehem, finally, uh, that Jesus and Mary and Joseph were living in a house, that they had actually gotten better quarters than the stable. So you can see how if if a person that isn't regularly in church is confused, how much more are people who don't even go to church going to be confused? So this, what I wanted to do is just try to sift out a little bit of the fact uh, in Matthew chapter 2 and look at it this morning. And it's simply a star, a stable, and a simple manger. First of all, the star. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest Christmas gifts I ever got was my first GPS. I don't know what year they came out. I got my first one around. I think Janine got it for me for Christmas around 2005, somewhere around there. And um, up until then, our thing had been when we went on a road trip or any kind of a vacation, uh, as AAA members, you could call in and get a trip tick. How many have gotten a trip tick in the past? Yes. Aren't they great? They were awesome. I thought they were the greatest thing we'd ever come up with. But then they came out with a GPS. And we get one for Christmas. And as it turns out, these friends of ours... Um, who had intended to retire up in Maine, they were friends from the little town on the Jersey coast where I grew up, said, uh, you guys, what, what, you know, are you getting away at all this year? Well, we're going to, you know, we have some vacation in January, but we don't know where we're going to go. Well, if you're going to January, we just built a brand new home, a log home up in Maine, uh, and it just happens to be right within a couple of miles of Sunday River Ski Resort. Uh, would you guys like to use it? <laughs> yeah, we'd like to use it. So not only after Christmas that year did I... Uh, get to go to Maine and go skiing, and they said we built a log cabin. It was a lo- it was a gorgeous log home, brand new log home. And uh, but the thing that excited me, I get in the car and I get to hook up my plug in my GPS and program the address in Maine, a little town called Bethel, Maine. Uh, program the exact street address, and that thing took us. That little thing took us turn by turn, street by street, highway by highway, all the way from Ocean County, New Jersey, to the little town of Bethel, Maine, near the Maine-New Hampshire border. And I was so impressed. We pull into the driveway, and here's the exact address. I mean, this machine is magic. It's amazing. You know, can I suggest to you that God isn't surprised that I'm shocked by technology. I never cease to be amazed at what technology continues to come up with. God's not surprised. As a matter of fact, he was into GPS long, long ago. And that's exactly what I want to suggest to you that the star of Bethlehem is. It's God's form of a global positioning system. The, uh, the, the, the three wise men, <laughs> forgive me for calling them that, but the wise men get there simply because God provided this amazing GPS for them. Look at um, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 9. Notice verse 9. It says, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So not only is it some distant star that they followed, they were either from uh, Persia, uh, the Mesopotamia, about modern-day Iraq or Iran, 
Um, and they followed the star not only to the general vicinity of Israel, but it came, the star came eventually. They ended up, actually at some point, and you have to deduce this by reading Matthew 2, at some point the star for whatever reason is no longer visible to them. Uh, I guess they get to Israel, Palestine, uh, and then for whatever reason God makes the, the stars no longer visible. So they go to Jerusalem and they inquire where can we find the one who is born king of the Jews, which Herod gets wind of, and we all know what uh, Herod thought of it. He was an insanely jealous man, and it led to a horrible tragedy. But they go in and they ask about it, and they get prophecy, and they find out that the Old Testament has said that the king of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel, would be born in Bethlehem. And as soon as they depart for Bethlehem, suddenly the star is visible again. And they follow the star not just to Bethlehem, but to the exact stable where Jesus was born. The star stood directly over the stable, brought them right to the address they wanted to go to. God, God's a, God is amazing, and his GPS is absolutely amazing. Notice, um, notice verse 10 and the, the, the reaction that they have to this. It says, when they, that is the Magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Sure they did. You know why? Because they knew in their heart of hearts that without this divinely provided GPS, the star, they would have never found their way to Jesus. Never. And so they see not only that they've found the promised king of the Jews that they were looking for, but they've witnessed a miracle of sorts. They know that God himself has divinely guided them to the birthplace of the Messiah, the king of the Jews. Can I suggest to you that the only reason you and I are here, if we're a believer in Christ, is because at some point in your life, God brought a star or maybe multiple stars into your life. Here's the point. Next slide, please. The Christmas star is a symbol of the fact that God always provides clear direction to people who are seeking Jesus. Can I say that again? The Christmas star is a symbol of the fact that God always provides clear direction to people who are honestly seeking Jesus. It's hard for me to believe, but this year, uh, I have been, as of March of this year, I'm sorry, as of March of last year, uh, I've been a Christian for 36 years. That's hard for me to believe. But the only reason that I found Jesus was because God brought several stars into my life. Several key people. See, I had a hang-up. I had grown up in a background where um, if you didn't go to church... You couldn't hope to get to heaven. If you didn't go to confession, you couldn't hope to get to heaven. If you didn't receive communion, you couldn't hope to get to heaven. If you weren't a good person, you couldn't hope to get to heaven. And the summer between my, some of you have heard this, forgive me, but the summer between um, my, the summer after I graduated from high school, summer of 1972, I came across a magazine article that said, heaven is a free gift. It was Billy Graham's magazine, Decision Magazine. And I'll never forget it. I started reading this article about heaven being a free gift. And all the relevant scriptures were there. And when I finished the article, here's the thought that went through my mind. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if that were true? Wouldn't it be awesome? And you know what? Now that I think about it, 
If God were going to get me to heaven somehow, it would have to be all of him. What have I got to give God? This kind of makes sense to me. And wouldn't it be awesome if it were true? Because if it is a free gift, that would mean that I could know for sure that I'm going to heaven. And I'll talk more about that as we close in a, in a little bit here. But that was a huge thing for me. And then what happened was, as I was seeking, actually I was going to say as I was seeking Jesus. The truth is, Jesus was seeking me, if I want to be theologically correct. He was seeking me, and he brought these stars into my life. Three key people, when I think back on it. And these three people, God used to lead me to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you that if you're a Christian, you're sitting here this morning, you can look back in your life, and you can think of uh, that, that friend, that neighbor, that family member, uh, that coworker, or that pastor, whoever it was, but God brought some one or more key people into your life that he used to lead you, just like a global positioning system, to lead you to personal faith in Jesus Christ. But you know where the problem comes in? Sometimes, and this is a, this was an issue for me, when I read that magazine article, when I was 18 years old, I read that magazine article, I was, uh, Jesus once said to someone, you are not far from the kingdom. I wasn't far from the kingdom. I was literally a half a step. But he brought someone into my life who, who gave me additional information, a star, but you know what? It was a star I didn't like. I didn't like him. It was, it was a person that I had had, my family had had some difficulties with in the past. It was a very well-meaning Christian, but a very legalistic Christian, a very outspoken Christian, someone that I was able to write off, so to speak. So when this person came to me and said, oh, Gary, I see you've read, you've, you know, you read this article. Wow, that's great. And went on to give me more information. But you know what? I was, I built a wall. I didn't want to hear it because I didn't like the star. God sent me. Be careful about casting dispersions on the stars that God sends to your life. And I mean, I get it. You know, if you're a parent, what could you ever learn from your kid? Right? You don't want to learn, you don't want to learn anything from your kid, much less something as important as how to get to heaven. Right? Janine and I have these really good friends back in Jersey. Um, Their names are Tom and Donna Arthur. And the first family member of the Arthurs I met was not Tom and Donna. Uh, at this time, they were in their late 20s, had three beautiful, very young kids. Their seven-year-old daughter came to the church where I was serving as an elder uh, uh, and started attending Sunday school simply because the next-door neighbor of the Arthurs invited her to come to Sunday school. So her name is Tiffany. So little Tiffany Arthur, six or seven years old, comes to Sunday school at Forked River Baptist Church, and she learns all about Jesus. And her heart is so open to it. She's like, you know, for us, usually adults, if, if, if you're an adult and the gospel clicks, uh, you just get this rush. It might last days. It might last, in my case, it was months. Uh, but you get this rush and you're really excited. Well, little Tiffany, six or seven years old, goes home and says to mom and dad, Tom and Donna, our friends, Tom and Donna, mom and dad, do you know how, do you know for sure you're going to heaven when you die? <laughs> what do you think they thought? Oh, you're a sweetie. Isn't that cute? She's going to Sunday school and she's learned about Jesus. Isn't that nice? Now, Tom and Donna didn't know the Lord. They weren't believers in a biblical sense. 
And as their daughter is trying to tell them, Mom, Dad, it's a free gift. You can know for sure. You can, you can be absolutely certain you're going to heaven. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so cute. But they weren't going to learn anything from their daughter, right? Well, thankfully, Tom and Donna weren't like, like I was with, with the, one of the stars that God brought my way. They said, well, maybe we should come to church. Oh, would you, would you please come to church? Long story short, Tom and Donna come out. Tom and Donna become believers. Uh, all, all of their family is now. And Tiffany, uh, the little girl that Janine and I knew since she was six or seven years old, is married to a pastor. And she and her husband are about to launch a church plant uh, in Sarasota, Florida in about two or three weeks. What if Tom and Donna had decided, you know what, <laughs> it's sweet what you've learned, but we're not interested. See, they were open to the star that God sent into their life. You may have a family member that you don't even like that has come to you to tell you about Jesus, and you don't want to hear it because you don't like them. I get it. I get it. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying... If you're like me, you need to exercise caution and at least reach the point where you can sift out the truth from your personal bias about the star that God sends your way. Because God sends some unusual stars at times to tell us the eternal truths of Scripture. So listen. Listen to your star. Talk to your star. Interact with your star. You don't have to go on vacation with your star necessarily, but you should listen. You really should. Because This Christmas star is a symbol of the fact that God always provides clear direction to people who are honestly seeking Jesus. So we have a star. Secondly, we have a stable. Uh, We see the manger scene usually with a little wooden structure, but uh, more than likely, if you ever go to uh, Israel, um, it's a wonderful trip. It's It's a trip of a lifetime. But if you go to Bethlehem, you'll see that there are a whole series uh, of caves all over in, in the side of the mountains there, built into the mountains. And more than likely, one of these uh, caves served as the stable where Jesus was actually born. And when the wise men got there, uh, I could almost picture them walking up. You ever, ever walk into a place where the odor hits you and is so strong it like literally takes your breath away like... <laughs> I think that's that's probably what happened to Casper uh, and Melchior and the other guy. They walk into the stable and it's like, <laughs> the smell is so bad. It's like they want to grab some some air freshener. It was it was stinky. It was offensive. It was probably damp, possibly cold. And I don't know about you, but I think to myself, Lord, if you're going to go to the incredible, gracious length to save us of sending. The second, the second person of the eternal triune Godhead, if you're going to let him come to earth and take on human flesh as a man, then why, why wouldn't he be born in the Bethlehem Hilton? You know, or at least in the Bethlehem Holiday Inn or Days Inn, you know? Why, why in a, a stable, a stinky, dirty, damp stable? Well, you know what? I don't, I don't know everything obviously, this is in the mind of God, but I'm so glad he did. You know why? Because the stable is a testimony of the fact that God refused from the very moment that his son stepped across the stars, took on human flesh, and became a man. God refused to protect his son from the sufferings of this life. That's important for us. That's important. It's it's critical for us. You know, in the book of Hebrews, if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about 
the writer of Hebrews talks about the incarnation and the fact that God sent his son to bring, in order to bring many sons, speaking of those who would come to faith, in order to bring many sons to glory. And when you look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And it seemed right to God, that is God the Father, by whom are all things and for whom are all things, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. I love that word captain. Only the King James and New King James use that word. I love that word. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. And, you know, someone's new say, wait a minute, you mean Jesus wasn't already perfect? I thought he was uh, God and sinless human flesh put together. He was the God-man, the sinless, perfect God-man. Absolutely, that's true. Then why does Hebrews 2 say that he was made perfect for us? For us is the, is the answer. He was made perfect for us, to us, in relation to us. Through what? Suffering. Suffering. In other words, this is a Savior that's not only coming to save us, but a Savior that can relate to everything that you and I go through as we go through life. As we go through the pain of life. You see, no one can ever say, no one can ever say, Jesus, Jesus could never know how I feel, because he can. No one can ever say, Jesus could never know how I feel because I am poor. I am in abject poverty. Well, do you know the Bible says that though he was rich, he became poor for us? As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew tells us, or Jesus speaks these words, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay his head. Jesus was the poorest of the poor. So no matter how poor you are, you can never say, Jesus doesn't know how I feel. Oh, yes, he does. Jesus doesn't know how I feel. He can never know how I feel because... I've been persecuted. I've been wounded. I've been unjustly treated. Well, guess what? So was he. So was he. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us he was wounded for our transgressions. He was punished for our sins. So not only did he suffer, he suffered unjustly. You and I, when we suffer, I'll speak for myself. When I suffer, at least in part, it's because I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person. So a lot of the suffering that comes to me in my life is because I deserve it. Jesus suffered, and he never deserved any of it. He suffered because of us and for us. No one can ever say, well, you know what? I've been abandoned. I was abandoned as a child, or or I was abandoned by my spouse or whatever. You don't think that Jesus knew what abandonment was? His, his 12 closest friends, maybe his 12 only friends in the world, abandoned him the very night before he went to the cross. One of his three best friends, Peter, not only abandoned him, but denied that he even knew him. So, does, can Jesus sympathize with you? Can he aid you 
or the, uh, the Hebrews 2 word in the King James, can he succor you? Not succor in the bad sense. Succor as in help, aid, assist. Can he help you in your circumstance? Absolutely, absolutely. God can never know how I fear because I've experienced, I live with pain every day. I'm in pain constantly. He was bruised for our transgressions and our sin fell upon him. And do you think that anyone ever experienced greater physical pain than the Son of Man experienced on the cross of Calvary? And you know, for you and I as believers, no matter how hard life gets for us, we can be comforted by one thing beyond question. The Bible says that when you're a believer, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. No matter how hard or horrible life gets, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. You're never alone. And not only are you never alone, but the person who's with you is the king of the universe, the God of the universe. But think of Jesus on the cross. where God the Father turned away from him, where he was completely forsaken even by God. As he bore our sin, God the Father had to turn his back completely on Jesus. So not only has he suffered every form of pain that we have, and then some, but God the Father. One of the questions that they'll hit you with in seminary when you first get there is, um, did God forsake Jesus on the cross? And, of course, the way that sounds, you're immediately tempted to say, well, of course not. But when you do, you're corrected. Yes, he did. He forsook Jesus on the cross. He turned his back from Jesus, hid his face from Jesus, because Jesus was bearing the sins of all the world for all time and was left completely alone in doing that. What about, if you're a guy, let me speak to the guys for a minute. What about temptation, gentlemen? (laughs) Jesus can never know how I feel. He's, I'm tempted constantly. Jesus could never know how I feel. Really? You know, the book of Hebrews also said he was tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin. So, do you, see, do you see the importance of, of the stable, guys? What the stable tells us is that God refused from the very outset to protect his son from the pains of life. As a matter of fact, he let him experience all the pain of life in greater measure than any of us ever will so that he could be our captain, the one that we can follow as we go through the hardships of life. The one that will never leave us, never forsake us. Lastly, number three, there's the simple manger. And the first thing we have to settle here, guys, is what is a manger? Clearing up more confusion from Matthew chapter 2. Let's have the first slide here on mangers. Is that a manger? Or, next slide. Is that a manger? The first one was A. This one is B. How many say A is a manger? Oh, come on. 
How many say B is a manger? Good, you're right. How many aren't saying anything in case you get caught? (laughs) Yeah, that would be me. This is a manger. We wouldn't even have the word manger if it wasn't for its use in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2. But a manger is simply a piece of barn furniture. It's a feed trough for cattle or sheep or whatever. And it says that when Mary brought forth her firstborn son, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lay him in a feed trough. That's the manger. And see, the only reason that a manger is anything special, and it is, it's something very special. It will always have, eter- it will have eternal significance. Why? Because God incarnate was laid in a manger only moments after his birth. Probably something that looked very similar to that. With straw around him and strips of cloth, wrapped in strips of cloth, he was laid in a manger. Something as simple as a piece of barn furniture took on eternal significance because the Son of God, God incarnate, touched it. And it became part of his earthly life and existence. And you know, guys, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are something, someone of eternal significance. Why? Because God incarnate has touched your life. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the spirit of Christ, you know, the Trinity are distinct persons, but they are they're completely alike and completely different. That's, the, that's how vast this mystery is of the Trinity. So much so that in Romans, Paul can refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. If you are a believer, the Spirit of Christ lives in you and will never leave you. And because he lives in you, you have eternal significance. A common, ordinary thing like a human being, and there's millions, billions of them on planet Earth, like you and I. But we have eternal significance because the Son of God, the Son of Man, has indwelt us and has touched us. And something very common, very ordinary, like a person, becomes a person of eternal significance. A star, a stable, a simple manger. Those are the three things that I just wanted to glean out of Matthew chapter 2 and uh, hopefully uh, talk about and clear up a little bit of the confusion. Um, If I could, as I close, I want to go back for just a second to um, my testimony. I hope you guys have been using uh, or or read for this week the information uh, about week six of the journey that we're on. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One of the paragraphs in there said, think about what you can do. Uh, and, and I'm going to put it in the New Year's context. Guys, we stand on the, the crest of a brand new year. Think about what you can do to focus yourself, as a believer, to focus yourself on the promises of God instead of focusing on the circumstances of life. Because, guys, if we, if we focus on the circumstances of life, which we're all tempted to do at times, let's face it, it's easy to lose hope. 
It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to want to quit. You can understand why people end their life. Tragically, more people decide to end their life during the Christmas season than any other time of year. Did you know that? They don't follow through with it usually until the springtime, but they make the decision during the holiday season to end their life. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it tragic that the season, the greatest season of hope that there is, is a time when people fall into the deepest hopelessness? But if you're a believer, it need not be so. Keep focused on the promises of God. Here's what happened as I was trying to sift out whether or not this really was a free gift or whether it was, you know, just uh, a, a Bible believer's way of trying to get me to change my life, you know, to, to, to stop right as, as my friend. Remember I told you the star I didn't like? He told me he knew I was on the road to hell because he had seen me in a bar and he had seen me riding a motorcycle. <laughs> That's how he knew I was going to hell. You see why I didn't like that star? And I thought, you know what? What what he's really saying is I'm just going to trade in my Catholic rules and regulations for Baptist rules and regulations, and I wasn't willing to do that. But in the sovereignty of God, he brought two other stars. And one of them said, Gar, keep reading Romans chapters 1 through 6, and keep reading the Gospel of John. And I read those over and over and over again. And I'll never forget reading Romans chapter 4, where it says this. Well, eternal life really is a free gift, by the way. I can't, that, the Bible teaches, there's some things in the Bible that are hard, to, are hard to understand, as Peter says. One thing that's not hard, eternal life is a free gift, guys. Keep it free. Keep it clear. And one of the reasons, Romans chapter 4 Paul says one of the reasons that God made eternal life a free gift by grace was so that, and I quote, the promise can be guaranteed to all who believe. I read that. I said, guaranteed to everyone who believes. I don't have to hope I'm going to get to heaven. I don't have to pray I'm going to get to heaven. I don't have to claw and scratch my way to heaven trying to be a good person, I can know right now, for sure, guaranteed, to use St. Paul's words, guaranteed that I'm going to heaven because Jesus says when you believe in him as your sin bearer, at that moment God gives you eternal life and you will never perish. And it's guaranteed. Guys, that's objective biblical truth. That is a promise. Later on in chapter 4, he says, Abraham, even though he was physically dead, did not balk at the promise of God, that is the promise of his son, but being strengthened in faith, he believed, he was fully convinced that God could do whatever God promised, God could do. God promises eternal life is a free gift, and he guarantees it in his word. Romans chapter 4, go home and read it. It's guaranteed to everyone who believes. Can I encourage you, as you begin 2017, cling to that promise, that objective promise, that truth of God that nothing can change, no circumstance, no sickness, no illness, no betrayal by a friend, no financial loss, no tragedy can take that away from you and me. 
We are guaranteed of eternal life because of the promise and the faithfulness of Almighty God. Don't, let's not focus. And you know what? I'll, I'll, I can tell you that right now, and it's so strong in my heart, I, could, I feel like I could believe enough for everybody here. But next week, something horrible happens or whatever, I'm human too. I need you guys to keep me focused on the eternal promise of God. And we need each other to stay focused on that eternal promise and to help each other when the circumstances of life get us down. Amen? Father, thank you so much for life and breath. Thank you for a new year. Thank you for the, the objective, eternally true, unquestionable promises of your word. Help us to cling to them as we go through uh, what we certainly will. All of us will have some difficult times in 2017. Maybe, for some of us, maybe we won't even be here on planet Earth when 2018 comes. But that's okay if we've trusted in you. Help us to cling to that promise and to encourage others to do the same. We pray it all, we ask it all, and we thank you for all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.